Welcome to Tipping Point, a new podcast from Merger Market, where we cut out the noise and we bring you the news and the views that matter most in the world of M&A. I'm your host, Tom Kane, broadcasting from the Windy City. On today's show, we're going to take a look at what is certainly a shifting landscape for M&A. According to Merger Market data, uh, overall activity in the North American M&A market is still about 48% down on where it was last year. But actually, if we look at the start of the second half, month by month, we've seen deal value slowly inching up uh, and we're seeing activity and new processes kick off in various parts of the market, not least technology and healthcare, but also areas like consumer and industrials. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome on Paul Prizant from Law Firm Asaibov. He's an M&A partner with the firm based in Houston. And Chris Tang, who is Managing Director at SRS Aquion, to go through some of these trends. Paul and Chris, welcome to the show. Delighted to have you on today. Thank you very much for inviting us. So let's let's start by by having a look at you know where we stand. Obviously, we're seeing a lot of new activity kicking off overall. You know, after grinding to to a halt pretty much during the, the lockdowns, it does seem that M and A has picked up steam. Uh, so between now and say the election, how do you see activity developing further? And, and you know, in your your experience, are you seeing people looking to transact now uh, ahead of the elections? Um, Paul, do you perhaps want to take us through your, your thoughts on that one? Sure. Um, I do think that uh, we're going to see activity go up. And I think the biggest reason is, well, there's really two reasons. First is that I think buyers and sellers are starting to adapt to the pandemic and, and everything that, that's happening because of the pandemic. But I think the other thing is that uh, there's the possibility that it could be an administration change, which could mean that taxes, especially long-term capital gains, could go up. So I think that if anybody was thinking about selling their company, uh, they would be looking at trying to do a deal this year. And if they're trying to do a deal this year, then they need to be in the market right now, uh, trying to uh, to be able to find a buyer and then be able to close by year end. So I think that that could boost, um, you know, certainly in the lower middle market, in the, in the middle market uh, more so. And are you seeing a shift from a, a seller's market to, to a buyer's market, do you think? Very much so. You know, there, there is, uh, I, I would say if, if, if you're talking about uh, pre-COVID, like let's say January of, uh, of 2000, uh, I thought, I think that uh, sellers, were able to do auctions and they were able to attract multiple bids. And so now I think uh, post COVID, we're seeing more of a more selective market and buyers are being very choosy for the companies that they're willing to go forward with. And you know, pricing has come down a little bit, but when we're talking about pricing coming down, we're talking about a company that pre COVID might've attracted a 10 X multiple might be coming down to, let's say, a 9x multiple or an 8.5, something of that nature. So uh, and I think uh, sellers are becoming more reasonable in both their pricing expectations and uh, they're also more open to acquisitions by a strategic buyer. 
Yeah, I think that you make a key point there. Valuation, obviously, against the background of what's happened this year, has been a big sticking point. And, and obviously, coming off the back of a you know really strong market uh, with you know very rich multiples across the board. Um, do you, are you seeing in in areas um, you know perhaps that were more affected by COVID sellers willing to to transact now at low valuations than before? In our own practice, we had seen a number of transactions that, that pre-COVID had attracted some, some very attractive valuations, but because of COVID, uh, we're not able to close. And so now we're seeing that some of those transactions that were put on hold before now are closing and, and have closed. And generally, they're at uh, a little bit lower valuations, but in many cases, they're all also having to restructure the transaction. Uh, perhaps because less uh, leverage is available from lenders. And so uh, they're having to make up that gap by either having more earnouts or having uh, you know, more, uh, a larger uh, equity rollover. So you know, you're seeing changes. People are adapting uh, to, to the current market. Right. So, so Chris, uh, you at SRS, you guys put out uh, a yearly analysis on on deal terms so have you done any work on how terms are have changed over the last say three to six months and you know what particular trends are you seeing at the moment yeah we have this is something we've been watching very closely as the pandemic has played out and i mean it's just been so interesting we we go from you know, just absolute boom times for, you know, for, for, uh, for M&A, you know, coming into this year and it all comes to a screeching halt in March. And, um, you know, th things are obviously still playing out to some extent, but, you know, we're, we really have seen an uptick in activity, you know, over the last couple months or so, you know, so we've, we've you know, first started to see strategics, you know, sort of dip their toe back into the water. And then now, you know, even more recently, you know, private equity, uh, has, has has been coming around more as well. I think um, you know as maybe you know financing concerns have been addressed more, and um, and maybe the, the sponsors are feeling you know good about the state of their existing portfolio companies that they can turn their attention to you know to to more acquisitions. But uh, you know along this theme of you know valuations, you know I think we're starting to see parties um you know really finding ways to bridge those valuation gaps that that have been there um where you know buyers are looking for bargains and, and sellers are looking to hold the line and so you know a couple of things that we've really seen that have been impacting deal terms are we've seen an increase in deals uh that have stock or equity in the buyer as uh, part of the consideration and um you know cash is still king we're still seeing you know, most deals are are cash only, but um, but definitely more equity that's getting thrown into the mix to uh, to bridge that gap. And then, um, as as Paul mentioned, um, you know, really uh, a, a, a you know, pretty substantial increase in the number of deals with earnouts. And both you know both in terms of um, just having an earnout, but also in terms of uh, how the earnout is structured, the percentage of deal value that's tied up in the earnout, and and you know uh, and, and other terms related to them, we've really uh, seen some changes over the last uh, several months. That's interesting. So, in terms of the the earnouts, are you seeing that in any particular sectors, or is that just generally across the board? Um, I, you were certainly seeing it in in the technology space, uh, as well as in the you know the life science space, and I'm. You know, th those are sort of the, the areas that, that we see the most of. But, um, you know, my, my observation is that you're sort of seeing it, you know, 
you know, all over as, as parties are looking to, to figure out how to get their deals done. And how would a deal like that be structured typically? Well, I mean, based on our data, you know, most of the time you'd, you'd see you know, around 15 to 20% of deals had an earn out. You know, the standard was kind of, um, you know, oftentimes one year, um, sometimes two years, and you're looking at, you know, the most common um, structure was just, you know, a revenue test, uh, things of that nature. And um, and so that, that was sort of what, the, what a normal earn out, earn out looked like at that point, you know, one to two years of revenue test. Um, but we've really seen, you know, changes in that already. Um, you know, one, as I mentioned, a uh, higher percentage of transaction value is tied up in these things. And so it, it's real money now, um, not just sort of the icing on the cake that perhaps, um, you know, prior deals with earnouts uh, maybe thought thought of the, the earnout as. We've seen, you know, a, a longer period to achieve the earnout, whether that be, you know, to achieve a certain revenue target or to achieve, a, you know, a specific milestone. Um, you know, instead of, you know, the one or two year uh, horizon, you know, we're, we're certainly seeing more deals drifting towards the two years. Um, and we're actually seeing an increase in deals with five or more years of um, uh, where that where that's what the earnout period is. And so that's, that's a really, you know, quite a substantial change. And as well as, uh, in, in terms of what the test is, you know, I mentioned before we were sort of looking at, you know, a revenue test or revenue target was kind of the, the predominant um, one before. You know, now we're, we're actually seeing a little bit of a shift back towards, you know, more EBITDA-based tests, um, as well as other maybe more sort of flexible uh, options where instead of just straight revenue, you're looking at, you know, maybe more milestone-based tests, maybe more things based on sort of immediate needs of a business like um, AR collections or, or things of that nature. So um, I think parties are really looking for flexibility and um, and really just trying to, uh, you know, uh, deal with, with all the uncertainty out there in, turn, in terms of trying to figure out how to structure these things that in a way that works for both parties. Okay, so more run-ups, we're seeing more stock being used in deals as well. Going ahead in this buyer's market environment, you know, what other things do you think could come into, uh, you know, what other kinds of terms, I guess, could, could come into the equation as well? Is there anything else that you're, you're expecting looking ahead? Yes. Um, and, and, you know, some of this gets into, into a little bit nitty gritty uh, in terms of, in terms of deal terms, but, you know, I think there's been a focus on, I mean, there's some very, very pandemic-specific items that that have come up in terms of how do you define what a material adverse event is. Essentially, you know, that that's the the term that could allow you know one of the parties to walk away if there's a material adverse event. Um, you know, so we're seeing um, you know sort of up the, the pandemic or items relating to the pandemic, um, either you know being specifically addressed or specifically carved out of uh, of the MAE uh, you know definition. And then you know also in terms of how uh, you know, the, 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 the selling company has operated both um, prior to the closing and then, you know, particularly um, as well during earnout periods to the extent that, that there is um, uh, that there is one. So, uh, you know, the, there's sort of more, just more focus on, on those types of terms where, you know, before you would say, you know, between signing and closing, uh, the company, you know, seller company has to operate in the ordinary course of business. Well, <laughs> defining what the ordinary course of business is or, and how that relates to operating in a pandemic uh, has, has really kind of shifted. And so, uh, and, and then likewise, how do you operate a business, you know, during an earnout period? Um, so there's, you know, there's been changes around, you know, the, the covenants and, um, and, and some of those requirements as well. 
So, Paul, you advise a number of strategic acquirers, and you know, what kind of considerations are strategics thinking about at the moment when when they're putting the trigger on a on an M and A deal? Um, the strategics strategics have a much longer term outlook for transactions, so they're looking to add products and services. Uh, they're going to be the the building blocks of their their future strategy. So. Uh, in many cases, they're looking for deals where uh, the company may not have a, a big impact initially on the company, but uh, you know has the potential that three to five years down the road could have a, a huge impact on on the future of the company. So, and I think we're also seeing that uh, on the sell side, that before entrepreneurs uh, really were very focused on building their company and and then then selling it. Uh, now they're seeing that there's more headwinds uh, caused by COVID-19 and abilities to to raise money. So we're seeing that entrepreneurs are more receptive to doing a deal with the strategic, especially because uh, when the strategic can devote more resources to developing the product or service uh, and, and then selling it out in, in the marketplace. So I think this is a really good time for strategic companies uh, that are using uh, M&A as, a, uh, as part of their ongoing strategy, uh, especially when they can acquire technology uh, as well as uh, you know, top-notch uh, talent uh, that, that some of these, these smaller companies have. So I think it's a great time for strategic companies to, to be out in the marketplace. Well, it's an interesting point on uh, entrepreneurs being being willing to deal with strategic. Another thing that I heard um, is on family-owned businesses and the pandemic potentially being an accelerator for family-owned businesses to look for a succession plan. Maybe they weren't considering selling for another two or three years, but but in light of the pandemic, um, that could change the equation. Is is that something that you're seeing as well? Uh, and if so, in what areas of the market? This is for a company today and these family owned businesses, if you can afford to wait, I think you're going to wait and you're going to sell in a better market. But but there's a lot of times with family companies, family owned companies, you have life event changes. Uh, such as you can have a death, you can have a divorce, you can have uh, the founders becoming older and not having uh, any sons or daughters who would be taking over the business. And so many times, it, this is just the right time to sell. Uh, what we're also seeing is that sometimes you have entrepreneurs that have built a business and let's say they've been running it for five to seven years, they've been very successful, but they're finding that um, you know, basically they, they need they need a partner to, to be able to take it to the next level. So in, in many cases, we're seeing sellers who are still very open to selling. And, you know, those, those deals are, are going forward. So, you know, but every situation is different. And so, uh, but, but we're, we're definitely seeing some motivated sellers. And if the pricing is not going to be substantially lower, they're they're still willing to sell. And so just going back to some of the points that Chris was making about the new terms that, that we're seeing, um, from a strategic buyer's perspective, you know, what what are they really looking for in the contractual part of, of an MA deal at the moment? But anything that you've picked up on, Paul? 
you know, they're, they are using earnouts, and, and I think part of what they're doing is what, what Chris had said, they're really extending the time frame for those earnouts so that a lot of companies have pretty much written off uh, 2020. And so the earnouts now are starting to be, they're, they're looking more to 2021, 2022, in some cases, 20 to 23 and, and longer. So I think that's one place where you're seeing terms changing. And I think we're also seeing that uh, earnouts, well, not earnouts, but uh, equity rollovers as a percentage of, of the deal, I think are, are, are higher. A lot of times pre-COVID, you would see the equity earnout being, let's say, 20% uh, being rolled over into the new company. Uh, we're seeing higher percentages, up to 40% being rolled over into the new company. And so from the, uh, the buyer's perspective, that means there's less money that has to be spent on the transaction. And it's also a way of, of lessening their risk uh, going forward. So you know, those, those are key things. Uh, the last thing I'll just mention is that uh, we've continued to see reps and warranties insurance being a, a very big part of transactions going forward. So they were already big uh, before pre-COVID, but I think it's, it's continuing. Chris, any thoughts on reps and warranties? Yeah, I would um, I would agree with Paul in terms of, um, I mean, that's something we were really looking at, you know, back in March and, and wondering about how would, you know, how would indemnification terms change? How would, um, you know, what would happen to the rep and warranty insurance market? Um, you know, because we'd seen sort of a, you know, a dramatic increase in the number of uh, deals using rep and warranty insurance, you know, over, over the past uh, decade. And, um, and so, you know, it's something we, we've been watching. And, you know, I guess a, a few observations are, um, you know, rep and warranty insurance is still um, certainly a, a big part of, of many deals. Um, you know, they think um, that, you know, there's a question in the beginning about how are, how are insurers going to look at uh, covering potential losses related to the pandemic. And I think, you know, different insurers have taken different tacks on that. But, um, you know, but, there, but there's many deals that, that are still you know, using that insurance. Um, you know, the other, the other related question being how much of the purchase price is put into escrow. And, you know, we, we were seeing, you know, sort of a steady decrease in the, in the percentage of, the, of the, the purchase price that was put into escrow, you know, leading up to, to the pandemic. And, you know, in, in deals with revenue warranty insurance, um, that percentage is looking, you know, about the same. I think maybe in deals where, um, you know, where revenue warranty insurance isn't uh, as big of a feature, it's maybe crept up a little bit. Um, so that, that's just been sort of an interesting one that, that we're tracking in terms of, you know, how are parties gauging the risk and how much, um, how much risk are buyers willing to take or not take in terms of what the, what the indemnity terms look like. So you mentioned that there's, there's some kind of debate among the insurers about how to approach the pandemic. How do you see that playing out? Well, I, 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 think, I, I think to some extent, you know, the, the reality of the situation is that it's, it's a competitive market. And so I think that there is, you know, qu quite a bit of pressure on all the insurers <laughs> if, if they want to stay, you know, in the market to try to figure out a, you know, a way to, you know, to provide the coverage that's going to make the deal party happy. And, and I think, um, you know, and I, I think, like I said, some of the insurers have, have approached that a little, a little bit differently um, in, in various ways. But, um, you know, in, in terms of what's covered, how are you going to price the deals, 
um, what do the premiums look like and, and such. So, um, you know, but again, I think it's, it's something that with time, you know, the, the, the parties are, are, are able, are being able to figure out. Yeah, just another quick, last question, I guess, on the, the deal term. So I noticed in your previous study, which I think was conducted pre, uh, on a period through last December, uh, you had noted that termination fees had declined in 2017 and 2018 and then declined again in 2019. Is that changing now in light of all the lapsed deals that occurred in the first half? Yeah, we, we actually have started seeing... I, I'm I'm hesitant a little bit to sort of call it a trend necessarily, but just in, in looking at some of the preliminary data I've seen, it has appeared that there has been an increase in you know um, in uh, termination provisions, termination fees, and the like, which you know would would sort of make sense as you're looking at this this time of uncertainty, where you know buyers are saying um, or you know parties are saying, look, if we're gonna uh, if, if we're going to look to try to, you know, get a deal done during this time, we need to <laughs> need to all make sure that we're committed here. So um, that, that was sort of a, an initial trend that we were seeing, and I'll be curious to see if that, uh, you know, plays out for the full year. Interesting. Uh, let's turn to due diligence. So remember uh, back in, I think, March and April, we were reporting that, you know, due, due diligence was obviously tough in many areas of the, the market, you know, for example, say an industrial company going to physically visit a, a plant or, or or one of those kinds of businesses where obviously if it's more tech focused you could do a lot of things virtually um paul i mean what are you seeing now obviously with um you know states having emerged from lockdowns in the last few months is that easing up and is that likely to have a, an effect on the overall length of a deal process uh, I think that the, the the overall length of the process has extended. I think pre-COVID you would see 60 days, uh, and then uh, now I think you're seeing in many cases 90 to 120 days, uh, just because you have due diligence by the buyer, you have due diligence by the lenders, and you have due diligence by the reps and warranties insurer. So a lot of those things are are taking more time. Uh, the, the the two other things I, I would mention is that, uh, and it's been very interesting, uh, pre-COVID, face-to-face uh, -face meetings were just, that's the way you did things. And so, especially for private equity clients, uh, they would be, you know, they would spend half a day going to visit a target, they'd have management meetings uh, in the afternoon and, and for dinner, and then they'd leave the next day. So they're basically eating up, uh, you know, a day and a half. Well, now they're using two to three hour Zoom calls, and, and I'm, I'm hearing from clients that they say they're just really amazed how effective those Zoom calls really are, especially in the early parts of the due diligence uh, when they're just getting the process starting and doing those meetings. So that's been really interesting. Uh, the other thing is it's really the use of technology. And so uh, I'm aware of one, one transaction where the, uh, the, the seller had a large uh, facility uh, you know, just think about a, a large football field that's, uh, you know, 100 feet in the air. And so rather than the, the lender and, and, the, and the coming down to go visit and, and see the inventory and machinery and equipment, everything else, uh, they did it with uh, use of a, of, of a drone, you know, inside the building. And, and as long as you have um, Wi-Fi, you know, inside the building, you can do a drone. And so uh, they were able to do with a... Uh, a drone video and 
live streaming uh, what otherwise would have taken somebody a day to have come down and inspected the facility. So you're, you're seeing people become very adaptive uh, and, and being much more innovative than they were before. So it's been an interesting transition. That's pretty fascinating, use of a drone uh, in the due diligence process. I haven't heard of that before. So from what you're saying, you're expecting technology, uh, the technologies that people have adopted during the pandemic to persist, I guess, you know, once the, you know, once we emerge from this. Um, and that's probably likely to transform the, the deal process in the future, I'd imagine. When people see that uh, they are much more efficient, I mean, think about the private equity buyer that uh, rather than spending a day and a half, uh, they're spending two to three hours. They're able to have more people on the call and listening. Uh, and so, you know, think about how much more productive they're going to be having another, you know, full day uh, to be able to work on other deals, work on other problems and everything else. And so I don't see people going back to that. And, and even, and then things like uh, use, using a drone. Uh, to do due diligence or, or other type of efficiencies that people are seeing. I, I think people are going to continue to latch on to those efficiencies. They're not going to be willing to go back to things that were inefficient. I think people's eyes are being opened up as to, you know, there, there are other ways that we can do things and we can do it better. So I think that's going to continue post-pandemic. What do you think, Chris? What do you, What trends do you see? persisting post-pandemic, whether it be from a deal terms perspective or some of these technologies? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would just echo the point around uh, due diligence, first of all. I mean, that, that's consistent with what we're hearing as well, which is, you know, we used to, you know, to do a deal, we used to have to be flying people back and forth, you know, all, all over the country uh, <laughs> and to uh, and have all these meetings. And now we can really, you know, really push through and get the deals done more quickly. And, um, you know, so we'll, we'll see as, as some of these play out as, um, <laughs> you know, as the diligence is, is done more quickly, whether we see any increases in, in issues that arise post-closing, um, you know, based on that. But, but I mean, I think, you know, for the most part, I think um, yeah, that's, that's sort of where parties are really going to, you know, are really going to want to stick to. Um, if they can do it more efficiently, then, um, then, then they're, in this case, if we're being forced to do it more efficiently, but, you know, I think a lot of that will, uh, will persist. But it's been fascinating uh, and great to have you both on the show today, Paul and Chris. Uh, pleasure to go through the shifting M&A landscape and what it means for the deal process itself, deal terms uh, as we shift from as we shifted from a seller's to a, a buyer's market, uh, and talk through some of the the trends that you're seeing on the ground. So thanks again for being on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you and. Wish you all the best for a, for a great fourth quarter and stay healthy and, and stay well. Thank you very much for having us on, on the podcast. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Tipping Point, the show where we cut out the noise and we bring you the news and the views that matter most on the world of M&A. Please subscribe and share, rate and like, and follow us on social media to get updates for the next episode.